presidential debate season is already upon us. And here at the Citizens Take Action podcast, John Landis and I are going to talk about the role of debates in the primary process, what to look for, what maybe not to overrate as you're watching a debate, and plenty of other things. Um, John, thank you for joining me once again. It's my pleasure. All right. So so as I said, boy, it feels early. It feels like there's already I'm already having presidential primary fatigue, and we're still a year away from the general election. But we recently had the first two Democratic primary debates. The um, next debates are coming up shortly. And so I thought it would be a good time to get together and talk about our ideas or our tips on what to pay attention to in the debates, what to not to overrate, um, and what role these debates play in the primary process. So why don't we start off with that? Because in a previous podcast, you had alluded to the very crowded Democratic field of 20-something candidates and... It seems like some candidates only talk for a total of two minutes or three minutes during the entire debate. So I'll start off by asking, John, do you think that this debate format and these debates are playing an important role in the process? Do you think we could be doing them better or do you think we're learning a lot I mean, about the I, I think on the front end, and there's obviously, I think also speaks to what we talked about like our last podcast, there's like a push and pull between inclusiveness and not wanting to put the having the party put the foot on the scale so to speak with um also having a process that gets to a meaningful result and allows people to actually get useful information and i think i think just on the front end it's really hard when you have two different nights of debates which means inherently that you don't have everyone on the same everyone on the same stage because that affects the dynamics tremendously. Like would Joe Biden have had a different night if he hadn't been on the same stage with Harris, if he'd been on the first night, which as far as, as far as we know, I believe those debate lineups are completely random, but it, it certainly affects the dynamics and it just, it makes it hard for, I think us as voters considering these candidates, if you are considering a Democrat candidate to decide who you want to support when you Say like let's let's just say hypothetically your two favorite candidates are Warren or Harris. They were separated on different nights and they're on stage with completely different people and candidates with different styles, who have different messages, with different viewpoints. And it's it's just not a fair one-to-one comparison when you have two different nights and two different completely groups of people to try to to try to come to a meaningful result. So I think that's a huge problem. I I understand the why the party doesn't want to limit, you know, to say the top nine or do like kind of like what would I, what I guess would, we would call like a kid's table debate because that would be another way to do this. Like say top nine, you're on one night and then we have the kid's table debate with 10 through 18. That would be another way to do this. Obviously, it was decided that that wasn't a good a good process that people would be happy with. So they went with this more randomized process. But it, I think it creates its own problems in terms of trying to get useful information out of these debates. And I think that I think the problems may continue for most of the primary because I could be wrong, but I, I foresee a primary with a lot of candidates hanging around until the end or close to the end. Um, and a lot of candidates, you know, within at least mathematical possibility of winning the election for a while. 
it's such a contrast to last time in the Democratic primary, where you basically had two or three candidates in most or all of the debates. You remember Jim Webb um, and um, Lincoln Chafee? Yeah, they were around for the first one or two. Yeah. Um, we're but this you know, five last time to give you a point of comparison. The, they were by default, literally by default, fourth and fifth compared to this cycle where we've got a lot of people that would probably be ahead of them if they were competing in the same election. I would say it's fair. I think it's fair to say. And, yeah. And these resemble a lot more the Republican primary debates from last last election cycle. And, you know, I think people thought those were kind of a mess and maybe I'm fearful that in in, in, in defense be- of the Democrat debates, unless I'm mistaken, there were no um, there were no veiled references to the sides of anyone's genitalia in the Democrat debates. I'm just going to say that as a point in their favor. Yeah, so far, so good. Um, so well. but, but watching the first two debates, I think there were two overarching concerns that jumped out to me. And I'm going to I'll mention both. And then I'll t- turn it to you to get your thoughts. So number one, I've always been a fan of debates. And I'm, I, I've thought in the past, and maybe it's because I was younger, or maybe things are different. I felt like, well, we need to get to the debates. That's when we'll really find out uh, who these candidates are and what they believe and what, who's good and who's not. Um, but increasingly, I'm becoming skeptical that the qualities that make someone good at a debate correlate very well with the qualities that would make somebody a good president. Or in the case of other debates, a good member of Congress or a good mayor, a good legislator. So that's concern number one. And then concern number two, um, kind of alluding to the Harris-Biden exchange you were talking about, but I also thought this with regards to the media reaction to the first debate and Julian Castro's performance. Harris got a substantial bump in the polls and Biden dropped based on their debate. And I couldn't help thinking that the debates, they seem kind of theatrical. And, you know, what what caused Harris to soar and Biden to fall was really like Harris giving, you know, a good one-liner early in the debate and then having that exchange about... Biden's comments about segregationists and busing. And I'm not saying that, you know, there's no important discussion to have about, you know, school integration, even though it's very strange to have busing being part of the national conversation again. It feels strange. Um, but it felt like there it was kind of a scripted moment that Harris had planned on and Biden was taken aback by it and didn't react in the best way. And and it's like, well, that's all it takes, you know, two or three good minutes on camera to change the shape of the the race so much. And maybe it's always been that way. But those are my two overarching concerns. One, that the, the qualities it takes to win don't correlate with necessarily what makes a good president. And two, that we're rewarding candidates too much for theater and maybe not enough for substance. Um, so what do you think? Well, I mean, I think I, th- I agree with both those points. And I think regards to the second point, especially, I think we have to think about like so many people, but I've had these conversations, many people didn't actually watch the debates, but they watch or, you know, see online or however they consume media, uh, whether social media or however they do it. Like it's essentially the, the narrative is shaped less by what actually like the three hours or whatever it was on stage in more by the sort of media and social media reaction to that. So if, 
if say that just gets amplified so much, especially I think with what you see with social media, you know, just people sharing things on Facebook or Twitter or what have you. And all of a sudden this just gets amplified. This one moment of this debate taken out of context and sort of seen through a, you know, maybe an a already biased filter in terms of somebody's viewpoint on the issue or the candidates as to that being the takeaway point from the debate as of oh, this one moment, say between Harris and Biden, which first of all is unfair, you know, regardless of how viable I think some of the people on stage were as candidates, that's unfair to the other people on stage who sort of get short shrift. Cause I watched that debate and I'll just, I'm not going to, I don't think this is the podcast to do our reviews or one debate. I thought there were a couple of candidates who were on that same stage with Harrison Biden who were really good, who had nothing to do with that one moment that sort of got amplified. And I feel like their performances sort of got short shrift because this one, this one exchange got all the attention afterwards. So I think that's problematic. Yeah. And I know- And to a lesser extent, you had the exchange between Castro and Beto O'Rourke in the night, first yeah. debate that got attention. And I, I was looking at social media during the debate and it was just like, you know, we're 30, 40 minutes in and it's like people are declaring Warren and Castro the winners. And I feel like the articles are already starting to be written. Like people are tweeting like, about it during the debate, like as it starts. And it's like, it like people are more, and this is just the climate we live in. People are more about like wanting to be like the first to be like, look who's, you know, owning who or whatever, rather than actually engaging in like a meaningful dialogue on the candidates and the issues. It's just sort of this, um, instant reaction kind of gotcha culture. It's very, I don't know, I'm a sports fan and you are too. It's very analogous to, I feel like how like sports media and sports social media react to things. It's like, it's just like this in the moment kind of instant reaction. And it's very binary. Like there's no nuance and there's no real context. It's just sort of like, you know, this very hard, very hot take culture that we live in. And I think it's really unhelpful in terms of, what the purpose of these debates should be, especially when we've got a field of 25 people or whatever, and we're trying to give each of them really, you know, let's say you're Michael Bennett, let's say, and, you know, do I think Michael Bennett has a realistic chance at this point? No, but this like, if he was to have a moment, this is his moment. And is he really getting, if, if you're going to even bother having some, having him on the stage in the first place, like the, I feel like people need to give these debates a different type of viewing than they're doing in order to give all of these candidates a real chance to express themselves and their viewpoints and why we should consider them. And we don't, unfortunately, uh, we don't have the clout to change the debate format. Um, but what I think we can do is maybe try and highlight what we think are important things to look for in debates maybe help nudge some of our listeners in that direction. Um, maybe not, but it's worth discussing. So you talked about, well, you know, so-and-so is not the purpose of a debate. But what do you think we should be looking for in evaluating these candidates on the dis- debate stage? What is important? You know, what should we be paying attention to and valuing as opposed to say, you know, who won an exchange with whom, even if maybe that ex- the substance of it doesn't matter that much, what actually does matter in your opinion? I mean, certainly I think the substance of the how people answer questions should matter. You know, I think when we look at, we've got a very crowded field and there's a 
frankly, not universal. There's a few handful of exceptions of candidates who clearly do not fall in this category. I think there's in, in the broad spectrum, we have a lot of candidates who have fairly similar views on like what I would call the big issues, um, you know, with a handful of exceptions. So, you know, let's say you've got like seven candidates who, you know, roughly speaking, have fairly similar views, say, on immigration reform or health care, you know, in terms of like the very big, broad, should we have universal health care? Yes or no. You know, let's say seven, the majority of them say yes. So then we're not, it's not about like the yes, no aspect is like how they answer the question. I'm just going to single out one candidate that I think shows like what I think the value of these debates are. It's not necessarily about like the yes, no, what we given that there's a lot of broad agreement, but I look at somebody like Warren, and I feel like you just listen to her answers. You know, maybe the conclusion she's coming to is not wildly different on the broad spectrum from what a lot of other people on stage are saying. But I think, I, it's more about how they reason, the level of detail, like the level of specifics in their plans, just like, you know, where they really show that, like, they can speak beyond just broad generalizations. Because, I mean, broad generalizations matter. I mean, I have I have my views on an issue, and if somebody has wildly divergent views on that issue than I do, that's a problem in terms of me deciding whether to vote for them or not. But again, when there is kind of broad agreement, I want more than that. I want not just like, okay, the, these people all kind of say the same, have the same viewpoint I do. How, how are they going to enact that? How well do they seem to understand the issue? How well can they articulate that? So I think that's one for me. And the other part of it I really look at is just more broadly, I want somebody who can be a president. And that, you know, that goes beyond just, do I agree with this person on the issues? I want to see their demeanor, how they how they think on their feet, their level of being able to like control their emotions, to um, to be respectful but also forceful. Like I just want to look at like you know, irrespective of like exactly what they're saying, just like also like how they how they are able to present themselves. And it, and it's difficult when you've got these crowded fields because there's a lot of you know it's hard to stand out. But that's kind of what I'm looking for is who feels like a president to me. I'm going to agree with you on a couple of things you said, but push back a little on one and you can tell me what you think. Um, so I agree that looking at the debates and trying to assess someone's knowledge and how they think about problems or policy issues is valuable. And I like one of the candidates I liked who didn't get much attention, but I thought she gave a good debate performance or at least I learned more about her was Amy Klobuchar. I just thought the way that she discussed some issues made made it seem to me like, oh, she actually knows what she's talking about. Like she's not just reciting a talking point some staffer could have prepared for mm-hmm. her. She really knows this issue. And I, I like getting that little bit more depth at least because sometimes I, I see a candidate and I feel like, well, I, an actor could just recite these talking points you're you're saying, or a staffer could just tell you to say these things. It's not clear to me you actually understand the issue if you're just Absolutely. at the And I don't level. want someone I who's just like telling people what they want to hear because, like, you know, it's a Democrat debate. You know, on certain on certain issues, there's a lot of differences of opinion, but you know, certain issues you kind of like know where the large majority of Democrat voters stand currently, and it's really not that hard to like play to the crowd on some of those issues. So I, I want more than that. I mean, even if I agree with that stance that plays to the crowd, I want to see more 
than just the ability to basically tell people what they want to hear. And I think that on the policy front, similarly, someone with a realistic plan to accomplish a goal is important for me to hear as well. Because, you know, as you said, anyone can get up there and say, I I support this or I want this to happen. I want to end climate change and stop gun violence. Well, yeah, so do lots of people, you know, sitting at home watching. But being able to say that doesn't make you qualified to be an elected official. You know, we need to know, do you have a realistic plan for accomplishing that goal? And so that's another thing I look for. Um, One of the things you mentioned, though, was the thinking on their feet. And now to say, to be clear, I'd much prefer a leader or a president who thinks on their feet and is very quick as opposed to someone who's not. However, this is one area where I wonder how important is this, you know, quick thinking compared to some other things. Like it reminds me of the bar exam, the California bar exam to become an attorney. You know, a big portion of that exam is multiple choice. And I think I'd rather have a lawyer who is good at it than bad. I'm not sure how much multiple choice correlates to practicing law. And I don't know how many kind of snap decisions or one-liners a president needs to come up with. Up with. So I don't know. Do you, I mean, how important do you think thinking on your feet is? Or do you think maybe we're overrating it and it'd be fine to have someone who may not be the most quick-witted as long as they make good decisions with a little bit of time. I mean, I agree that the ability to come up with like snappy one-liners on the spot is not, it should not be like necessarily the number one criteria in a president. But I do think like the ability to respond to not just sort of be like, oh, I'm really prepared for this by my staffers, as you were saying, but to be able to like adapt to like a change of circumstances or to sort of maybe the tone of the debate or what you're being asked to be respond to being a little different than what you were necessarily expecting and to be able to adjust to that rather than being caught completely flat footed, I think is, is something that is relevant to what the job of being the president or the job at any leadership position requires Um, that ability to um, not just be able to, you know, memorize things or be prepared, which is also important, but also to be able to be, adaptable and calm and collected and have the ability to adjust to things. I do think that has some relevance to um, what the job of president actually entails. So it sounds like you think that some big things to look for are kind of the depth of knowledge people have um, and the way they think about problems, which, as you said, in these 10, 12 person debates, it's difficult for people to speak too long on issues, but sometimes you get glimpses of it. Um, What are some things that you think maybe average debate viewers or the media or social media overrate that we should restrict our or limit, try and limit our impulses to respond to? Like, I understand there's a natural human component of this. And one of my concerns with the debates is that they're consumed as entertainment too much. And we can't help but watch and go, oh, you know, that person won that exchange and that makes me like them more and more likely to vote for them without thinking through how much winning that exchange really matters. So what are some things you think maybe we're overrating or that the media overrates? I I certainly think like sort of entertainment value and just sort of being different is overrated. Like, I mean, I know that these, some of these, these not necessarily serious journalistic you know, sources or, you know, there's different, some people do 
consume these things as entertainment more than anything else. But I mean, like when there's stuff out there and like the media, basically that like Marianne Williamson was the real winner of the debate, basically because she was kind of like amusing and endearing. Um, even though like, I don't know what, on what basis apologies to my Marianne fans, you would watch that debate with the other eight people on stage and be like, Marianne Williamson should be president. I say like, I think Marianne Williams is like a terrible person. I mean, that's like not the criteria. It's like, I might want to have a glass of wine with Marianne Williamson, but, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about who should be president. And like, I do think I would like a little bit more seriousness, you know, say comparing her to say Amy Klobuchar, like this is running for the job of being president, not running for the job of person that you might want to, um, that you might enjoy, you know, hanging out with. I think likability and personality it is it does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. And I get that, like, you need to be a good communicator and be able to, you know, have good people skills. That's an important part of the job, too, just like any leader needs to have those abilities. But I think that type of analysis is really kind of missing the point as to like, this is essentially like a version as of a job interview to be president. And we should be looking at how people perform is did they pass that interview? Cause like, you know, like I've interviewed people for jobs before you may have too. you might really like somebody and be like, I totally would like hang out with you. I think you're a wonderful person, but you're not right for this job. And yeah, some people you watch to... a debate and they're not right for this job. That doesn't mean that they, that they don't have any other merits as human beings, but that doesn't mean they should be president. I think it's hard. I think you're right, but I think it's hard to divorce who you like from who you think you should vote for. Because I think it's just natural to watch a debate and like someone because of something they said, whether it's substantive or not, and then be more inclined to vote for them. But I think I think it's important to try and suppress that impulse and instead maybe think, oh, well, well, who, this isn't who would I want to hang out with. It's who would I trust to make a good decision about, you know, foreign policy or the prospect of going to war or be able to influence legislation in a positive way. But it's not easy to do that. I don't no, think. It's definitely not. And I, and I do think, again, I'm not saying that like people skills and communication skills should not be taken into account. It's just there. I think there should be a little bit more than like to the analysis of like, oh, I thought they were funny or they seem like they'd be a good hang. Um, like, I think we need to go a lot deeper than that in terms of like if to get any value out of these debates at all. Because like otherwise we could just like, hey, talk about your favorite topic for 10 minutes and like see if you seem like a cool person. Like that's not what we should be doing in terms of deciding who should be president in my so one of my pet peeves or one of the things I think we overrate in the debates, and it's related to what you said, but specifically it's the zinger or like the one-liner that gets laughs or applause from the audience. And by the way, I know in the past other people have proposed not having a debate audience at all because the audience reaction influences the media coverage and things like that. And I don't know exactly where I stand, but I'm open to the idea because I do think the applause can be distracting and distort uh, the way you view it as a viewer. But specifically with the with regards to the one-liners, you know, there was the one-liner in the second debate with Kamala Harris where the candidates were talking over each other and she said something like, 
you know, the people don't want to watch a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on the table. And a lot of pundits seized on, seized on that as, you know, a great moment or one of the ways Harris stood out. And maybe because I'm more cynical or more experienced working with political campaigns. But to me, I just thought, well, that's just a scripted one-liner. You know, it doesn't I, I mean anything. I also thought what she was doing with that line, I mean – I agree with her on the question that like, I, again, I don't think I don't want to see debates turn into two guys. literally like making veiled references to um, their genitalia and engaging in that kind of level of discourse. I don't think that should exist in society period, certainly not in debate stage to be president. So I agree that that kind of, I agree with her on her point about not engaging in that kind of petty kind of, you know, schoolyard level discourse. But I also think it's kind of kind she's kind of doing the same thing she's criticizing because part of that not doing the food fight is to have these debates be serious topics of you know involved serious conversations. And instead she's going for a snappy one-liner, which is kind of perpetuating the lowering of the discourse in a way. Not not on the same level as what I just said, but like it's still kind of turning this from like a serious conversation to like, you know, comedy almost or like, you know, a roast battle where like the goal is to just one up your competition or get like the best line in. And I don't, I don't think that's what these debates should be. So I agree, but I want to make a slight counter argument because it's not my intention to, you know, I don't want to be critical of Harris for, for making that line. I mean, although I agree with you, you know, we don't want Jeff Ross and Anthony Cheselnik as president just because they're good at zingers. (laughs) But I think a counter argument with regards to that line or even Harris's attack on Biden, which has, you know, people have differing views was look, maybe the one liner was scripted and not very serious. And maybe her attack on Biden was a tad theatrical and not entirely coherent, um, but that's what it takes to win the public perception battle in debates. She knew that. She was prepared, and she played the game, and she won. And therefore, you know, she deserves credit for that, and that speaks to her preparedness and ability. And so even if you're cynical of the value of the one-liner or her attack on Biden and selling T-shirts afterwards, um, you could argue, well, this is like a challenge on a reality show and she was prepared for the challenge, so she deserves the credit. I mean, what do you think of of that? Because I could see both sides of it and I'm not sure exactly how I feel. I certainly don't blame her for playing by the rules that, I mean, to some extent, I don't blame her for playing by the rules that exist and knowing, you know, what, where we stand in 2019 in terms of what plays on social media and, you know, aggregators and, um, you know, that's going to be pulled out by snippets for the media. Like I get that, but at the same time, if you're sort of point of your, criticism is that these debates should be more serious discussions about issues that actually matter to American voters, which is a point I wholeheartedly agree with, then maybe it's a little hypocritical to to make that point while sort of playing into the type of reaction journalism that sort of makes that harder to accomplish. I don't know 
if my maybe my memory doesn't serve me, but it's concerning to me because I feel like in the past, you know, whether it's uh, 2008 Barack Obama or 1988 George Bush, I feel like it's hard for me to imagine so many candidates there are those candidates and candidates like that who generally had a, a demeanor that people would consider presidential to engage in those kind of zingers and theatrics. And I feel like it's more common now and it's more rewarded, but maybe you think I'm, I mean, I'm not remembering. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go down this road too far, but I think it's fair to say that regardless of whether somebody supports them or not for other reasons, I think it's fair to say when you look at the background of the person who's currently president and his communication style and the type of rhetoric he engaged in both in the debate stage and off the debate stage, it's pretty easy to see why candidates might think that this type of, um, you know, minus maybe the elements of it that they really find objectionable, which I think all of the Democrat candidates probably would find many of those elements objectionable. They still might look at some of that type of, communication style as clearly being effective and wanting to at least like in, in some moderated form adopt some of that because they've seen that it works. How, what kind of reaction it gets on these in the modern communication channels of 2019 for better or worse. You know, these are people that are all pragmatic or at the end of the day and they're competing with like 24 other people to be president and, I, I, I understand why they feel like this might be necessary. I'm just not saying, I just don't think it's a good thing for accomplishing what we want to accomplish out of these debates. One of the other things you mentioned that I also think we overrate or almost can't help but naturally overreact to is the pandering that candidates do. And I think it's one of those things where they've done studies and people people respond more positively to other people like who share their name, for example, like I'm, my name is David studies have shown that I'd be more inclined to initially like someone named David or like a sitcom character named David, just because I'm named David with regards to the pandering. I feel like people can't help, but like a candidate a little more if they sort of name check the group they're a part of or a pet issue of theirs. But what would you describe as, you know, an example of pandering and why you why you think we need to be careful not to be so swayed? I mean, by I think not say that I don't like them or that I don't support them because of this. I think most, if not all, the candidates on that stage, I felt like were engaging in some form of pandering in the sense that not say they're saying they think that they don't agree with, but I think they know what their audience is and. And, you know, they're playing to that. Except to me, like I get back to like what I was talking about with like, say, Warren, for example, or Klobuchar, as you pointed out, like I think the best way to counter like the sort of criticism pandering is to be really specific and to be really like thoughtful and programmatic and what you're saying, not just say we need to stop climate change, which, you know, you just say that on its face to an audience of people who believe that we need to stop climate change. You could call that pandering, even if you agree with it, but to say we need to stop climate change and then I'm going to actually give my program because the reality is like saying universal health care, maybe 80% of that audience supports universal health care. So you can pander to them by saying that. But then if you actually talk about your plan, 
maybe 80% of the people in that group don't support. Like, let's say you support universal health care, but not Medicare for all. There are going to people, there are going to be people in that audience who don't like that or vice versa. There are going to be people who might be pro universal health care, but aren't Medicare for all. And so I think just being really specific and going beyond just sort of like the basic platitudes is the best way to counter that. And this, I know you've got to get going soon. So this, I think transitions nicely because I want to leave our listeners with one, each of us, let's give one major kind of big picture takeaway of what we urge people or hope people will pay attention to in debates, like what to value. And to piggyback off your point, I hope that people watch candidates on the debate stage and ask themselves, does what this person is saying make sense? Because to me, that's a test. And as you said, lots of candidates get up there and talk about whatever group they're going to help or what problem they're going to end and don't have a realistic plan to make that happen or even a kernel of a plan. And that's often a case of sheer pandering. But I think if you ask yourself, does what this person is saying make sense? It helps separate the candidates who actually are knowledgeable and have thought through the issues from the ones who are frankly lightweights and are just relying on talking points fed to them by staff members or polls to try and gain traction in the debate. So that would be my my one piece of advice or my one takeaway. So How I'll, about I'll give my sort of very pragmatic one. There's I think there's two that are useful. I'll give my pragmatic one and my sort of more sort of meaningful one. I think it is important to look at these debates because there will be debates in the general election. Well, let's say hypothetically you want, regardless of who wins the Democratic nomination, let's just say hypothetically you want one of those people to become president in, in November 2020. I do think it's important to look at their performance in terms of electability and be like, this person seems like they're good at this. Because being being good at being a presidential candidate is not the same thing as being good at being president. I think that's pretty clear. And if you want somebody who can win, I think it is valuable to watch these debates and see this person is good at this type of campaigning, which is part of the job of becoming president. I think that's the very pragmatic, maybe cynical thing that I think is worth looking at. And then sort of the more meaningful one is watching these people, which of these people actually seems like they, from like the substance of what they're saying, the level of detail, and also just like their, their their approach and their demeanor and their their, their genuineness and the, the way their character manifests itself seems like they'd actually be a good president. Not like who I think is funny or who has good, the best quips or, you know, is the most like has the best speaking voice or is the tallest or whatever other superficial characteristics one might look at, but who actually seems like if they win – would actually be good at being president with all the demands that job requires. And that's, that's a complicated analysis, but I think there is some value. I don't, even in this very flawed process of these debates, I think there is some value that one can glean in terms of going beyond the very superficial elements in terms of like the very broad, you know, positions they hold or those sort of very, you know, superficial analysis of their presentation to look a little deeper at like how they would actually maybe perform if they're in office. And maybe that's a good point to end on, which is you can glean valuable information from these debates, but it definitely shouldn't be your primary or 
certainly only source of information because you have candidates' websites, you have their town halls, and most importantly, I think you actually have their their track records and their experience or their, and what or their lack thereof in some in cases. Or their lack thereof. And I think it, you know, it'd be a mistake to write somebody off with a great track record because they have a, a mediocre or unexciting debate performance. And it'd probably be a mistake to vote for somebody or support somebody who's inexperienced and maybe not as knowledgeable just because they come off well on camera. Um, so, you know, as we move forward to the primary, try and try and suppress some of your natural impulses toward like toward who you like the most or likability or who who's the funniest. And, you know, think about the presidency as a job, because as much as it seems like it's entertainment at the end of the day, it's someone who's making life and death decisions, not to be hyperbolic because that's the truth. They need to win and they be able to do a good job once they win. So I think you need to look at both factors. All right. Well, John, thank you for going over the, the debate process and key things to look for with me. And as always, check out citizenstakeaction.org to volunteer or donate. I'm David Edward Burke for John Landis, and we'll be back with another episode of the podcast soon. Have a good day.